Attention, attention please, stand by for another episode of When Humanists Attack. Hi, this is Chris West and I want to welcome you to another episode of When Humanists Attack. We are a 501c3 not-for-profit religious organization. Today I'm going to be interviewing our friend Stephen Keller. Stephen Keller is a free-thinking evolutionary biologist. Welcome, Stephen, to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Stephen, tell me a little bit about you as a person. Let's start with baby Stephen. Where did you <laughs> grow up? What were the influences? I was born in southeast Pennsylvania, a little town called Phoenixville, just outside of Philly. So sort of in the suburbs to the west of Philadelphia. Youngest of four kids. So I have a brother and two sisters. Born into an Irish Catholic family, you know, grew up going to Catholic church every every Sunday. Went to Catholic school starting in the first grade. See, my, my sibs all got to go to public school. Historically, the second son was the one that went into the priesthood, right? You know, it's funny you bring that up because I had no idea about that until much later my sister told me. And she said, you know, I think mom and dad were kind of hoping that you were going to become a priest. Well, not <laughs> for nothing, oh. but you kind of have. Yeah, in my own very in, secular in your, yeah. way. You know, starting in first grade uh, all the way through high school, I was going to Catholic schools. Religious education was a huge part of my education. I learned a lot about the Old Testament, the New Testament, all the prophets. Whenever I'm, I'm engaging with folks over religion, I always feel like 12 years of Catholic school education gives me a certain background that I'm very comfortable discussing religion in. I have a question yeah. about something specific that I didn't know myself about Catholic schools. Yeah. Which group of Catholics were running the schools that you were in? For high school, I was trained by Jesuits. Uh, so, you know, the Order of St. Ignatius. I don't believe my primary school had a, a particular denominator or, you know, whatever. It wasn't uh, being run by a particular order. Not that I was aware of, at least. Yeah. Okay. How did you see the world growing up and, and how that changed as you went through your elementary school, through your high school? I assume that we're talking post-Vatican II, right? Oh, yeah. This was all post-Vatican II. You know, priest was turned around. He was facing the congregation, you know, the, the whole liturgy was in English. We were singing, you know, songs with, with a beat to them. I mean, it was crazy, right? <laughs> and I should, I should say that there's five years between me and my closest sibling in the birth order. My other three sibs were all born, uh, you know, one year apart, each of them. So are you then what we call an afterthought baby? I consider myself to be an outlier personally. Okay. Yeah. That distance through time, the separation between me and my brother caused me to be necessarily a bit more independent. I wasn't allowed to like tag along with them to, you know, cross the street, for example. It was too dangerous for me to cross the street on my bike, but they could all go and, and they did. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time coming up with my own fun, uh, which was usually wandering the woods near my house. And my parents were pretty comfortable letting me do that. They gave me a lot of freedom to just go out for hours on end, as long as I was home for dinner. This was all pre-cell phones, obviously. So they had no way of texting me and, you know, saying, where are you right now? Or no, no Google location detection. 
This is a suburban um, setting, I'm assuming. It was at the time. So, you know, I was born in 74. At the time, it was pretty rural. There were other neighbors nearby, but there was a huge patch of woods um, with creeks and ponds. So I was a naturalist. I wanted to go out and wander the woods. I liked just like thinking about big things, whatever a big thing is for a seven, eight, nine-year-old, but just sort of exploring my own thoughts. And I really was into nature. I wanted to pick up anything that moved. I wanted to catch it and hold it and look at it. I wanted to think about where it lived and what it ate. And so I was just always really tuned in with the natural world. And I, th I think in terms of like the origins of how I got here in my current life path and career, that's really the nucleus of, of how things started was that sort of independence and being comfortable, being by myself and, and sort of pondering the things that I thought were meaningful in life and the connection to nature. And I felt much more comfortable there than I did in church. You know, that nature was my church, even from an early age. That's where I really felt connected. In some way, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit of echoes of Darwin there, right? Because Darwin was a theologist mm, first. Right. And then right. later developed his theories on during his journeys. My neighbors had a beagle. That's about as close to the beagle as I got with Darwin. Oh. <laughs> I can remember very clearly myself what I thought of the universe. I was a seeker as well, but I was trying mm -hmm. to find all that kind of stuff from other people. Came from a completely atheistic family. We did holidays, but they were all just secular based and we listened to christmas carols but we never went to church for mass or anything like that so mm -hmm. my general point of view about the world and whether there was anything supernatural was all self-made or influenced by the people around me and i did do a journey into various forms of christianity because it was what my friends were doing not mm -hmm. i just wanted to be with them on sunday instead of hanging out with my parents what was your first inkling of maybe all this church stuff isn't quite what I thought it was. Probably in like late middle school, early high school, going through puberty and, you know, thinking about sex and the other kinds of things that I wanted to do that I was told <laughs> wasn't a good idea. The dogma, at least as I learned it, was self-denial is a path to purity from the very beginning, that was confrontational viewpoint for me, you know, because it created internal conflict. Why do I want to do these things? And yet if I, and I'm, of course, I'm going to fail at some point, right? I mean, I am human after all. And then I just feel terrible about myself. Am I really a bad person? Because, you know, I'm, I'm having some of these feelings. So that sort of, I would say, started to, to put a crack in the in the ceiling for me and, and think about, uh, well, what is this all about anyway? You know, and, and am I sort of being behaviorally kept in check by what's essentially dual threats of eternal punishment balanced with the potential of eternal reward? <laughs> yeah, I heard someone speak the other day at, in a call-in show that I listened to, and they were saying, 
God loves you. God loves you unconditionally. And the uh, host said, you mean the unconditionally where if I do something wrong, he sends me to eternal hell and burning forever. It's like, that doesn't sound unconditional to me. (laughs) Like me, you've gone through a life of relative ease, right? You're a white middle-class kid in a white middle-class suburb. Uh, There are very little few things that are barriers to you doing whatever it is you want to do so tell me how how that you go from this this privileged position into where you are now which is still privileged well i went to college at a a little liberal arts college in pennsylvania and majored in biology you know sort of pursued that path that spoke to me early on i actually um had a a a mid-college crisis at one point and decided I'm going to scrap science altogether and I'm going to become a writer because that was the other thing I was good at. I was always, uh, always a good writer, mostly like technical writing, not so much fiction, but you know, I could, I could write a strong essay. It was a good nonfiction writer. And so I thought I'm just going to go into journalism. And I did that for a semester and I said, Nope, back to science. <laughs> and we're better and, off for it. If I can say so. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's good to, to do those little experiments, right? Because it, it helps sort of align your compass back to center. And you're like, yeah, okay, this is real, what really makes sense. I wound up working in Colorado for a few years uh, as a biologist for the National Park Service. Um, this was with a bachelor's degree, right? Yeah, with a bachelor's right. degree, yeah. Right. And that was a pretty nice life as a 20-something, you know, no, no major encumbrances, no big responsibilities. I, I got to buy great toys, mountain bikes and skis and, you know, just spent a lot of time outside. Um, but intellectually wasn't as fulfilling as I desired at the, even, even with all the fun I was having it, it also felt like this wasn't really going to end anywhere beyond where I was at the time. Right. You know, I could do that for 30 years. Yeah. No path. Yeah. I went to graduate school. I applied to schools and actually applied to the University of Vermont where I work now and I didn't get in. I applied to the University of Alaska in Fairbanks to work with a very uh, well-known ecosystem ecologist named Terry Chapin. And he looked at my application and, and he wrote me back. I give him a lot of credit for this. You know, lots of people are trying to bang his door down. And he wrote me back and he said, I'm going to take another student this year instead of you, who was a little bit better fit for my lab and everything. But I passed your application on to another faculty member in our department who's looking for students. And, and I think, you know, you might be interested in his work. Uh, his name was Kent Schwagerly. And so he did that. And, and Kent offered me the position. And I was like, yeah, all right, let's do it. You know, that was my there was really one door that opened for me and it's like, all right, I'm going to walk through it. So I went up to Alaska and it was the best thing I could have done for a couple of reasons. One, it opened my eyes to the, the vastness of the landscape in a way that I had never seen before. It totally put me in a different environment, literally but also sort of uh, metaphysically almost like I'd never been in an area where humans felt so small and the landscape and the, the natural processes all around you were so huge. 
And, and so that was really humbling. And then also that's where I found evolutionary biology. Even though I was a bio major and as an undergraduate, I had never taken a course in evolution. And it was one of the courses I took my first semester at University of Alaska was a graduate course in evolutionary biology. And I said, this is it. Hmm. I want to do this for the rest of my life. And I just couldn't get enough of it at that point. And so that's what I did my master's degree on. I finished that and started a PhD at the University of Virginia in evolutionary biology, and then just kept it going from there, basically into postdoc and then eventually faculty positions that, that brought me up to UVM. So what is evolutionary biology? Evolutionary biology is the study of the process of evolution. So it's, it's describes the four main mechanisms by which biological life changes over time, over generations, mutation, gene flow, genetic drift, and natural selection. And those four processes acting on biological entities, whether it be, and, and there's, a, there's a, a continuum of scale here from the gene. You know, if you think about Dawkins, one of his most famous books was The Selfish Gene, right? So selection can actually act at the gene level within a genome. And it can, it can act at the level of whole individuals, you know, selecting individuals that have particular combinations of traits that allow them to survive or leave more offspring than others. And the individual level is probably the, the level that most people are most familiar with or comfortable with thinking about selection happening. And then it can also happen at a higher level, like at the level of groups. And there's a, a very well-known evolutionary biologist, David Sloan Wilson at uh, SUNY Binghamton, who's actually... Uh, studied evolution at the group level and even um, posed it as a hypothesis for why we have organized religion, you know, what what the different group level potential benefits might be that, you know, allow organized religions to repeatedly crop up and and maintain themselves and even spread. And that, that brings us almost to the, the concept of memes, right? And I'm not talking about kitties hanging on a stick with a have a good day. I'm talking the, the original definition of meme, which yeah. is basically the, the social equivalent of a gene. You know whose idea that was, right? I, I've heard whose idea it was, but I don't remember. It's Dawkins. Huh? Dawkins invented the concept of a meme as a direct analogy to a gene, right? So if a gene is sort of the unit of biological heredity and can be uh, selected on, on and, and, and yep. increased and spread through a population because it has some replicative advantage, then an idea or, or a concept or a word, even a phrase, a picture, the cat hanging on the wall can also spread socially through a culture uh, by a similar process, and he termed that a meme. That's interesting because I'm reading this selfish gene as we speak, and I was hearing, mm. I was in a chapter talking about memes, and I was unaware that that was the first sighting of it. Uh, you'd have to know, of course, the the breadth of all of the books that he had written to understand, and other people had written about this type of thing to understand that that was uh, a unique usage 
but now I'm glad to know it. Thank you. Yeah, Dawkins is a huge influence on me. I mean, I knew his his work as an evolutionary biologist just as part of my my training, my academic upbringing. But then besides the primary articles, the journal articles he wrote, I started getting into his books and he's just a brilliant thinker and a great writer, of course, too. So like The Blind Watchmaker and The Selfish Gene, of course, God yeah. Delusion. Yeah. Um, he's He's made a big impact on me. All books that we should all have on our reading list, whether we read it and agree or read it and don't agree, he's an important thinker for what we're into. This movement, the secular humanism, this atheistic movement is a very important person. Of course, Chris Hitchens is in there too, but he's not a biological uh, evolutionary biologist, right? He's a, he's a guy, was a guy. Uh, right. with some very good ideas. The thing I love about Chris Hitchens is, of course, that he was from the upper class and went to all of that upper class British upbringing. And he can pull out a sentence from some obscure British thinker that we all say every day, but he knows the site, you know, and he yeah. can say, oh, that influenced this because of that. Brilliant. I just love listening to him. But the other people who you would say are important in the development of the lay understanding of evolution and evolutionary biology that you would recommend people looking into? Oh, yeah, uh, so many. And, you know, if you're looking for someone who writes from the perspective of an evolutionary biologist, but writes in a way that is is geared towards a public understanding without a, too much technical jargon and whatnot, Edward O. Wilson, the well-known Harvard faculty member who has been a great champion of the importance of biodiversity on the planet and, and our need to protect biodiversity. He's an evolutionary biologist. He, he was trained from the very beginning, used to be very more mathematical approach to empirical studies and whatnot before he started, you know, later in his career thinking at sort of a more conceptual level and feeling the calling almost, I see it, to really engage with politicians and the general public to raise this awareness of, for biodiversity. And that, that sort of became his main career um, passion and contribution later in life. But he's written great books about evolution and the diversity of life that exists right now and how easy it is to fail to see the full breadth of biodiversity if you're mostly focused on things with backbones, right? right. I mean, right. The, ver the vertebrates are a late development and in terms of their biodiversity and how speciose they are, I mean, it's, it's a tiny little drop in a overflowing pail of you know, the, the species that have evolved on earth. And it's easy to sort of be myopic in your, in your view, be, because we're vertebrates ourselves to just, you know, focused on furry brown things. Yeah. Um, things with, and, what was it? Uh, I was listening to Aaron Ra the other day, go through one of his uh, informational biological presentations. And he was talking about radial symmetry and uh, mm. the changes from radial symmetry to something having a head and an anus and, you know, bilateral symmetry, bilateral symmetry. Exactly. Yeah. And 
that that fascinating stuff because of course if i look at something and i see that it has eyes and nose and a mouth i'm going to say oh that's much more like me i'm going to be able to emote with this or at this thing and anthropomorphize it much more easily than i would be some sponge or something that doesn't have any of that yeah exactly you brought up stephen jay gould earlier when you were referring to your anthropology um background and he's he's another really great evolutionary biologist that that wrote for the general public. Of course, he's he's passed on now. Um, but Gould had a couple of great books, and the one that I think really speaks to this idea of of biodiversity through deep time too, including all of the species that have gone extinct now and and aren't represented anymore. It's a book called uh, Wonderful. I think it's called Wonderful Life. I have, to, I have to double check my source there. But anyway, he comes up with this cool analogy of life on Earth in the three and a half billion years that it's been evolving as sort of the a film on a reel. And that played out from its first evolutionary origins until time present. But the, the particular way that it played out was idiosyncratic and it wasn't a, a march of progress. It wanders somewhat randomly without a goal that it's heading for. And then also that the, the mass extinctions uh, that have occurred repeatedly over Earth's history have wiped out most of the biodiversity. Most of the, the species that have ever lived on Earth are, are completely extinct now. And that that extinction in many ways randomly, not because they had or didn't have particular traits that made them less fit to stick around. But, you know, they were catastrophic events that nothing could have prepared them for. And and nothing could have evolutionarily <clears throat> gotten them ready for. Uh, right. Volcanoes erupting for years at a time, blanking out the sun, changing exactly. food chain availability. I heard one theory once that there was a change that caused a lot of the animals living in the sea to die and that created sulfur dioxide which then created a gas that came up on the land i mean evolution doesn't prepare something for that unless that happens often enough for it to survive right. it if, I, if my understanding is right yeah exactly right in fact the first mass extinction uh happened with the advent of the evolution of photosynthesis Right. So prior to that, the atmosphere of Earth was uh, largely what we would refer to as a reducing atmosphere. You know, it was anoxic. Right. And most of the prokaryotic, the bacterial life that existed at the time was perfectly well adapted to that environment. And then when photosynthesis evolved in cyanobacteria, the precursors to modern plants, all of a sudden, I mean, it was such an evolutionary advantage, right, that it quickly spread and all of a sudden you had these cyanobacteria that could photosynthesize pumping huge volumes of oxygen into the atmosphere basically poisoning earth's atmosphere for all of the other organisms that were currently you know well adapted uh and that wasn't something that they could have prepared themselves for because it was a f the first time it happened right right but anyway, so so Gould makes this cool analogy with the with the reel of, of film, and he says, you know, if you were to rewind life's tape back to the beginning and play it out again, 
would you would come up else. with a completely different outcome. And, and you could do that experiment hundreds of times, as long as you wanted to. And each time you would come up with a different random direction that didn't end in humans or vertebrates or anything that you're familiar with right now. Yeah. Yeah, the lack of direction, the fact that if we were to expect a, an alien species from another galaxy to come and visit us, that we would expect it to have a head and eyes and nose right. and mouth and anus, hands. <laughs> it, it doesn't make a lot of sense from an evolutionary biologist's point of view, because there's so many options at every branch. That's right. That's right. And I know that there's a couple of forms of life that we don't call life, like viruses are not considered yeah. to be technically alive for yep. for a very specific reason, which I would rather leave to you. But walk me through what you understand and, and what your present uh, thoughts are on abiogenesis. Yeah. And just to that last point about viruses, uh, you, you struck a memory for me of being in a huge introductory bio lecture hall as a freshman and getting into a, a vocal confrontation with my professor over whether viruses were alive or not. <laughs> the reason that they're not considered alive is because they're not capable of replicating themselves outside of their host. And they're also not capable of their own metabolism. So they can't generate their own energy, right? They can't break down sugars and, and derive ATP from them. So they're just these sort of odd self-replicating bits of biological heredity. One of the things that happens in, in that journey though, is that your cosmology changes, right? You're, you're brought up in this, in this, world where your cosmology is influenced, if not based upon what you were taught by the Catholics. And we're talking Vatican II. So the Vatican II, one of the things that the Catholic Church said was that evolution is a fact, which helps, right? You're, yeah. you're not going to get the, 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 the message from the priests and the nuns that you're wrong about evolution, that there's that, co that cognitive dissonance you've got to maintain as if you were a young earth creationist. So right. you, you had right. that benefit. Is there a point at which you finally decided I'm done with this old belief? I don't need it anymore. And how did that land with the people around you? Most importantly, your parents who were in some interesting way, trying to turn you into a priest, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right. In case they wind up watching this, I want them to, to be aware that my decision, you know, was something that I had to do for me and that it isn't a reflection on them at all. And I think that was, that's the hardest thing for maybe anybody that's brought up in an orthodox environment that exits from it, right? Is that you're sort of extracting yourself from a community. And it's a community that invariably includes your family and close friends and people you love and that love you. And so it's one of the most difficult things to do. Anybody that's done that, I'm sure can relate to that. And um, I think I did it, I didn't rip the Band-Aid off all at once. I sort of did it slowly. I became less and less vocal and interested in anything to do with the church um, when it would come up in conversation or when I'd be back home to visit with them you know I would 
I just not be very interested in participating in, in uh, church-related activities. Finally, I, I just had to tell them, because I also didn't want to like pretend anymore, right? I was like, look, uh, I, don't, I don't think I believe in God. And I don't, I'm, I'm certainly not a Catholic anymore. And I remember that being a, a difficult conversation because I, I could feel the disappointment, but I could, I could also feel the love that was still there. And I think that's something I always give them a lot of credit for, you know, like, what's that, what's that ranking that people talk about? It's like, you know, God, country, you know, whatever comes after that. Apple um, pie. Apple pie. <laughs> The flags in there somewhere, I think. <laughs> For my folks, it was family. Family was at the top of that list. Above that, God. I cannot tell you how often I interact with people who don't have that experience. I, I volunteer for Recovery from Religion, an organization where people can call in or chat in and talk about the problems that they're having getting over their belief in, and almost all of the really bad problems are problems that are brought up because their parents or their community refuse to accept that and and basically shun them uh, yeah. from that so yeah I give your parents credit too that's that's a a, a, a lofty goal and they they pass that test for you and I, I'm glad for right. you for that it's why we have a strong relationship and remain incredibly close still. Are your other siblings still believers or have some of them also left the fold? Yeah, my oldest sister is an atheist. We actually have a lot in common. We think just very similarly. Andre and I just have always seen the world through similar lenses. And, and certainly that's true for religion too. Lisa and Chuck have more spirituality uh, in their lives still. And I don't really know exactly where they are with things. And we used to get those Necco wafers and pretend they, they were Holy Communion. <laughs> <laughs> we as a group are interested in, in street epistemology. Um, yep. And you just started reading the original book by Peter Bogosian, um, A Manual for Creating Atheists, um, yep. which... I recently found out was a, a title that his publishers pushed on him for uh, publication reasons. Give right. me your. Wasn't your, he going to call it Street Epistemology initially? You, it, it, and that is the subtitle. So you were reading the first couple chapters of this book, and you had some interesting observations. I just wanted to ask you to to share those. His approach is quite interesting and very direct. I find his approach refreshing and very direct. I don't know if I could actually walk up and start engaging as a street epistemologist. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was was fun was he he talks about faith, you know, and he he defines faith <laughs> uh, early on, right? And uh, I might need you to help me out here, but basically he's saying like, faith is when you say, you know, I'm willing to pretend I know things that I don't know. That's exactly what he says. Yeah. Right. And then, and then, then he then gives take... a whole table of examples. <laughs> right. 
I think we'll put that in the uh, in the notes so that people can can refer to that particular table. But basically, he's giving you a new definition. Instead of using the word faith, he's saying whenever you would say faith, put in things I believe without a good reason. It's it makes it sound ridiculous, which is the exercise. I yep. will point out that the most recent book, How to Have Impossible Conversations, it doesn't dance around the definition of faith because the faith is still believing in things without having good reasons. Yeah. But when we're talking to someone using street epistemology to understand why they're relying on faith, right? Because epistemology is the study of why we know what we know, how we came about making the decision that that was a truth that we're holding. There's a series of steps you can take to unpack that pretty straightforward mm -hmm. steps. And the first one is something called the outsider test, which is I'm talking to you and you're telling me that faith is the basis for how you make your decisions about things. And those things, I actually was talking to this Hindu woman just the other day, and she used the exact same words and is using faith to defend her particular belief and how do i the person who doesn't believe in either decide or figure out which one if either of them has anything close to what we would call truth which one is and when i say truth i mean conforming with the reality around us right right the book you're reading is kind of the initial book and it's really been expanded upon this this later book we're going to have uh links for these books down below one of the things I liked about his writing, too, is he comes out with an unusual definition of an atheist, I think, which is somebody that, you know, is viewing the world based on facts and, and rational thinking, doesn't use faith because his definition of faith is pretending to know things you don't know, right? And so that's antithetical to an atheist worldview. But he also, at one point, and this is what surprised me about, about his writing, was that, you know, he said to an atheist, if information, data, were to be revealed that God indeed does exist, or some prime mover exists, then the atheist would be, would have to follow the data, would have to follow the logic, right? I thought that was really interesting, you know, kind of provoking. To claim that a prime mover doesn't exist is to pretend you know something you don't know. Right. And that's right? why the modern atheist movement has very carefully not taken on the burden of proof there. What they're right. saying is, I am unconvinced by your claim that there right. is a prime mover or there's a God. I will withhold my judgment of new data until I'm convinced that it conforms to reality. Any kid that gets old enough to have heard of the Big Bang and to have some comprehension of what the Big Bang represents, their first very logical question is, what was before the Big Bang? Yeah. Right? And you can't know that. Not before the Planck time. Right. We're stuck. And yeah. There are some physicists that espouse the theory that the 
the expansion of the universe that we're in is one of a series that have happened through time, right? The present presentation, as they call it. That's right. You can't see anything with our current instrumentation and our current ability to derive theory. You can't go before that singularity, right? We can't know anything about it, even if there was something before it. And the right answer to the question is, I don't know. The answer uh, they call the God of the gaps fallacy is, I don't have an answer. So I'm just going to put in this placeholder. And then I'm going to imbue this placeholder with all kinds of abilities and thoughts and (laughs) judgments. And then I'm going to make sure that that particular version is what everybody else has to believe or else. What have you studied or what do you understand of the theories of abiogenesis, the beginnings of life from non-life to life? The classic experiment here, it's known as the Miller-Urey experiment. And it was designed to recreate the the abiotic or the physical conditions of early earth. You know, so earth formed about four and a half billion years ago and was a pretty volatile place in the beginning, right? Lots of methane, gas in our atmosphere, lots of volcanic activity. What Miller and Urey did was they re- they did their best to recreate this uh, early earth environment. Um, and it was an aqueous environment, right? So liquid water, you know, eventually uh, came on the scene. And so they, they recreated this, this chemical environment inside a glass labware vessel. And then they applied electricity um, to it to, to sort of simulate lightning. And what they found were amino acids linked together in sort of like a, a primitive polypeptide, right? Of course, proteins are the building blocks of life. It's proteins, the central dogma of, of molecular biology, which just got finished teaching my students, is that DNA makes RNA and RNA is translated into a protein, a a polypeptide sequence of amino acids. And everything that makes up an organism is derived from proteins in one flavor or another, you know, your bones, your tissues, your muscle, all this stuff, it's all just protein. And so the fact that Miller and Urey were able to assemble amino acids into a sequence that mimicked or recapitulated polypeptides, the building blocks of all life, suggested that, uh, you know, a a spontaneous origin was feasible and in a way that mimicked the early conditions on earth. And so really that, that's still, I mean, this experiment, uh, I don't even want to give a year because I'd probably get it wrong. 1950s if I'm right, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's many decades old at this point. It's still the canonical view or demonstration that to generate life from non-life is possible. One of the things that I hear a lot from apologists is the molecules to man, right? That's that's a Ken Ham from the uh, Answers in Genesis uses that, that term a lot. The claim that we get from them is that this is a random process. How can random processes create non-random things? I, and I understand that that is not 
at all true. We're not talking about random processes. We're talking processes with very strict rules to them. Can you mm -hmm. give me an idea or, or run down a little bit about what, what you would say to someone? If I think the easiest way to, to think about evolution and the, the preservation of you know, an organized state from a less organized state is as an algorithm, right? So evolution operates as an algorithm, meaning there's there's a set of rules that can be iterated over and over and over again. And if there's a an optimization criteria that's part of that algorithm, then organization is a byproduct. And so natural selections optimization criteria is survival and reproduction, right? Whoever leaves the most copies of the information that they pass on, that winds up increasing in frequency in the next generation because presumably there was some advantage, some replicative advantage that uh, that individual that did so well has. And sometimes there's a, there's a randomness to that too, right? People get lucky. For by and large, that's the optimization criteria is what, what traits do you have? What features, characteristics uh, does an individual have that causes it to survive better and ultimately leave more offspring. Richard Dawkins made this argument very persuasively in The Blind Watchmaker. And he said, taking on this argument of randomness, selection is anything but random. It is the opposite of random. It looks at all of the competing biological entities in the population, we'll, we'll call them individuals. And it's a Malthusian survival of the fittest, right? And that's a non-random process. And so whoever is leaving the most copies of themselves because they were the most fit and they survived the best, that's not random at all. And whatever traits they have are going to be in a higher frequency in the next generation. And batch. so selection is a very non-random organizing process. Where people get tripped up is that the variation that it is selecting on, you know, if you want to think of it like a, a hunk of clay uh, where selection is the sculptor perhaps, right? But there's the raw material that it's, it's initially acting on. That raw material comes from the random process of, of mutation, right? Fundamentally, that's, that's how uh, the sort of fundamental new unit of, of, biological variation gets introduced is through mutation. So mutations and, can happen in two ways. One is random mutations and one is allele frequencies. An allele is a version of a gene, right? right. So, the end tail, if I have that right. Well, so like you, every, you know, you've got 20,000 something genes uh, in every cell, right? And you actually have two copies of those 20,000 genes. You got, you got one version of the 20,000 from your mom and one version of the 20,000 from your dad, right? And the copies that you got from mom and dad, if we just look at like, um, you know, gene A, those versions of gene A might be completely identical, but more than likely they are slightly different. You know, one might have variation in the DNA sequence that the other doesn't. And that's what we call alleles, those different variations of copies of the same gene. They arise through mutation okay, and then are, are passed through inheritance from our parents to offspring. 
during my research into your work, I came upon the term population genetics. Yeah. Is that, am I in the right direction with that? Isn't that the recessive and the, and the, the uh, dominant genes and how those mix together and how those express themselves in populations? Yeah, so dominance and recessive refer to which allele at a given gene tends to have the influence on the phenotype or the trait, the physical characteristic that you see, right? So in the sickle cell example, an individual that has one copy of the sickle allele and one copy of the normal allele, we would call that a heterozygote, right? It's got one in, one of each. Mm-hmm. But the phenotype that it expresses, its its physical characteristics is one of a healthy individual that does doesn't not have sickle cells, doesn't have sickle cell disease. So in right. that case, we would say that the normal allele is dominant over the recessive sickle allele. Got you. And it would really take two copies of the sickle allele in order to express the disease. If you're a heterozygote and you have one copy and one healthy copy, you tend to be resistant to the malarial parasite. That's what it was. So in regions of the world that have high malarial incidence, you tend to see selection, natural selection, maintaining this otherwise harmful allele in the population because it does some good when it is combined with a healthy allele and it Ah. makes them resistant to malaria. Okay. I understand. Which is kind of cool, right? I mean, and and it's it's a great example coming full circle of Selection is anything but random. Evolution is anything but random, right? Right. The, what caused the sickle cell allele to happen in the first place was a mutation. Right. And that process of mutation was random. What happened next was entirely non-random, right? The increase or decrease of that allele in the population had everything to do with its effects on Survival. the fitness of right. the people that carried it. Yeah. Right. Wow. Thank you for clarifying that. I, I know it's a bit in the weeds and I apologize to the, the viewers if that's very, very deep. Dawkins wrote a computer program that the, the optimization criteria was to come up with the phrase from E.E. Uh, e. Milne, me thinks it's a woozle. You start out with however many letters make up that phrase and you know, you'd have to count it out. And there are 26 possible letters in the alphabet, right? So you got a one out of 26 chance at any one letter of being right, but then you multiply that through by how many letters there are. And the probability, because those probabilities multiply, right? The probability of getting the entire phrase on a random roll of the dice is as close to zero as you can get and not be non-zero. Right. Unless you apply an optimization criteria to your algorithm, right? And so Dawkins's was anytime you uh, get one of the letters on, on just a random roll, right? One out of 26, the right letter for its position in the phrase, you keep it because it has some advantage, right? So he's sort of, you know, mimicking natural selection here. And he can evolve me thinks it's a woozle in very few generations, just simply by applying uh, criteria like natural selection that maintains favored combinations of things, even when they arise due to a random process. One of the points that we often make when we're having these discussions is it's okay for there to be forces that, that affect how things develop. It does not have to be conscious. 
We don't want right. to hear the universe is conscious because I'm conscious. The only reason that this consciousness is because God gives it to us. If God wasn't creating conscious every second, then we wouldn't be conscious as if consciousness is this magic key. Right. Instead of an emergent property of what brains do. Right. Um, right. And, and the answer that I usually hear, and I'm a hundred percent behind is show me an example of consciousness without a brain. And then we can talk. I often like to think about, the the senses that we have right that allow us to perceive certain aspects of our environment you know the ability to see light that we know exists right is an evolutionary adaptation that didn't used to exist you know photosensing cells um and the same is true for all of our senses so have we discovered them all have we discovered all of the levels of sensory information that are out there to be perceived? Why do we think that we have? And consciousness I place in the same category. If consciousness evolved, it doesn't mean that somehow, ah, we, we finally got to the end, hooray, you know, like pat ourselves on the back. We made it, we haven't made it. There's no end point, There's, there is no goal. What's yeah. the prognosis there, doctor? Uh, you want my honest answer? I think we're going to start engineering our own genomes. Mm -hmm. And at that point, uh, it becomes a very different process of evolution. Then it really, it is essentially a directed process. The technology is in its infancy, but it does exist. You know, if, if you followed the Nobel Prize in chemistry to... Uh, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier For CRISPR, who right. discovered CRISPR. Right. I'm fairly convinced that we'll, we'll, we'll take the helm of editing our genomes and the way in which it happens and the ethics and how those decisions get made is all very complicated and it'll, it'll be a topic of conversation that our kids and our kids' kids will have. But I think that's that's our future of evolution. And whether that leads to the path of speciation or not, I think is almost a political question at that point. Well, Steve, it has been an absolute pleasure. I could talk for another hour about this stuff and come up with cool things to talk with you about. I think we'll do the rest of that offline over a beer and some chips. Around a fire pit. There you go, as we usually yeah. do. I want to yeah. thank you so much for taking time out to prep with us and spend time with us. Again, this is Chris West, West, the pontificator for When Humans Attack. I want to put a shout out for our technical crew sitting back there doing all the things behind the scene that make all of this happen. Please like and subscribe if you're liking this video. Check out our other videos. And until next time... This is Chris West West for When Humanists Attack.